You're listening to Set 5 Pass, a podcast about all things Yu-Gi-Oh! And I'm your host, JD Shock, aka Juian. Every week there's a new topic and can range anywhere from deck profiles to archetype analysis. Of course, we also cover Yu-Gi-Oh! news and provide a recap of what happened in the past week to keep you updated and informed. The podcast is on Twitter. Find us at Set5Podcast to stay up to date with what's going on throughout the week and let me know what you think of the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello and what is up everyone? I hope you all are enjoying yourselves today. Now that COVID is getting a little bit more under control and people are ignoring it just a little bit more, we're seeing regionals happen again in person. And I cannot express to y'all how excited I am to go to an in-person event. I don't think I've been to a regionals probably since like 2015. So this will be huge for me as I dip my toes back into a really competitive serious scene. I think that I made up my mind and I'm going to play Tianyi Sword Soul, which is, I'm still kind of learning the combo lines, but it's working out. The deck kind of plays itself, which is pretty nice. If you're going to any regionals um, or any type of large events soon, which ones are you going to? What deck do you plan to play? Let me know on Twitter. Who knows? If you're in the Midwest, I may see you and that would be pretty cool. Large scale events are always a blast. In some ways, they're kind of like mini conventions. There's just so much Yu-Gi-Oh! content crammed into one space for a couple of days, and it feels like a whole new world if you've never experienced it before. Plus, there's always side events outside of the main tournament, such as like speed duel events and win a mat tournaments. So that's and they do the token booth every now and then. So all of that wrapped together is pretty cool. Things like that, I'm over here hyping myself up about regionals, but y'all are here for an episode, so let's get on to that. This episode, I want to talk about Dinomorphia. Dinomorphia is a deck that was released in Battles of Chaos, and what makes it different is that it is a trap deck based on having really, really, really low life points. At first, I thought the deck was really rough, but after about two weeks of deck building and analyzing and really, like, messing around with the deck, I found that this deck is really fun. It needs a little bit more hands-on deck to get some real theory crafting going, so we're going to go through that all together and look at what's in store for it in the future. Maybe you'll get some inspiration and want to play test it with yourself. That would be great. But, like always, before we get into this episode, let's cover some of this week's Yu-Gi-Oh! news. Starting off with Master Duels, Master Duels is celebrating 20 million worldwide downloads by giving all players 1,000 gems. In addition, they've added new gates to the solo mode featuring the Weather Painters, an archetype that we broke down here on the podcast not too long ago. Other Master Duel news, get your theory crafting caps on because the next Duel Festival has been announced. Starting on March 23rd, running through April 4th, the Low Rarity Festival gets into gear. In this event, all super and ultra rare cards are banned, so you can only use normal and rare cards. In addition, they've made a custom ban list affecting True Draco, True King, Megalith, Magispector, Generator, Time Lord, Tenyi, and Phantasm Spiral Dragon in hopes to diversify the event for all. If you are a frequent rogue player, you're probably going to love this event. 
And up next, OTS 19 has been announced, debuting on June 10th, 2022. Players will have a chance once again to collect powerful tournament era cards and fan favorites to upgrade or add to their collection. So far, we've only gotten confirmation that this set will feature an ultimate rare Fallen of Albaz. So if you're looking at the new Albaz structure deck, you'll maybe want to pick up a copy or two. Uh, OTS 19 will be available at your nearest official tournament store. And that's it. That's all for news. So let's get back to the episode. Alright, so Dinomorphia. Dinomorphia is an interesting archetype. The archetype's introduction contained two level 4 main deck monsters, hella trap cards, and a couple fusion monsters. Just looking at that alone, something seems off, like a fusion deck with no fusion spell. Well, yes and no. The theme in Dinomorphia is paying half your life points to activate your effects over and over again. The lower, the, the lower you get in life points, the stronger some of your cards become, and you access additional effects from like your other cards, such as like attack buffs or burn damage. Because the theme of this deck is living on the edge, this game operates very much like a mid-range deck, aiming to close out games pretty quickly. Now, if your life points get way too low, say like 500 life points or less, don't worry because all of your trap cards have graveyard effects that can protect you from burn damage or battle damage, which is really nice and comes in handy way more often than you think. Their art style leans into humans wearing dinosaur mech suits, which is pretty unique for an art style. As for lore, I can't really tell if Dinomorphia are supposed to be like the superheroes or like the renegade villains in the city that they're in. Their art can be interpreted kind of either way, but because of all of this cityscape art, I would really like to think they're in the same universe as like S-Force, Time Thief, Cyframe, and you know, that whole posse, but that's just a speculation and a hope that I have. Now, I'm not going to go through all the cards like I normally do in an archetype breakdown. Instead, I'm going to summarize what we currently got out of Battles of Chaos and kind of expand on that. For their main deck monsters, you got two level 4 dark dinosaur monsters with kind of weaker stats. On summon, one of them sets a trap card and the other one sends a Dinomorphia from deck to graveyard. They both have an effect on destruction to banish a trap from your graveyard to summon the other one from your graveyard. Which is really cool because it makes like a versatile loop that you can establish and we'll get a little bit more into that later on. As for traps, they have a few. They have normal and counter trap cards. No continuous trap cards. All the traps require you to pay half your life points to activate. So for their normal traps, they have a double monster reborn a non-targeted destruction similar to DPE, a card that fusion summons a Dinomorphia by sending the materials from your hand, field, or deck to the graveyard, and all the normal trap cards can banish themselves in response to effect damage to null the effect damage that you're taking that turn. Their counter traps are a little bit more interesting. So for counters, they have a spell and trap negate, a Summon a 3,000 defense token <laughs> and a counter trap card that copies any counter trap card in your graveyard if you have a fusion monster on board. And all the counter trap cards can banish themselves from the graveyard to prevent battle damage in a pinch. Also comes in handy way more often than you think. 
Lastly, we have their two fusion monsters. Both of them are level 6 dark dinosaurs. The first one is a 4,000 attack point monster that loses attack equal to your life points. And it has a quick effect that you can banish a Dinomorphia trap from your graveyard to copy the trap effect. The other one also kind of comes in handy. Uh, it allows you to not have to pay life points to activate any trap card or any Dinomorphia effect if your life points are under 2,000. And once per turn, it burns the opponent when they activate a monster effect. And both of the fusion monsters special summon one of the level 4s when they're destroyed, so they get that loop re-going again. So that is the quickest breakdown I can cover for this deck. I could have said that all much faster, but we don't care about time length here. So let's look at some of the notable aspects of this deck. There's only two things in life that are certain. Death and paying life points for trap cards. Everything costs life points, so dropping your life points really low happens really fast. To put into context, if you're sitting at 8,000 life points, three triggers drops you down to 1,000 life points, which puts you in a kill zone for a lot of decks. However, the trade-off here is that you get some effects that rapidly place like a lot of pressure. So the goal is blocking key choke points for a turn and then swinging in for game the following turn. And that's the usual game plan. This deck can play a grind game. However, it's not really recommended. Some other notable synergies in this deck include other trap cards that require life point cost. Most notably like the solemn trap cards fit perfectly into this strategy and can even benefit in the mid game. The first thing that comes to mind is that the Dinomorphia counter trap card that copies any counter trap in your graveyard. You could hypothetically be running six copies of solemn judgment although it would be kind of bricky you essentially don't have to worry about any of your opponent's plays if you have five negates in your back row. I don't know. Sounds pretty good. Being a trap deck, this deck can utilize Lord of the Heavenly Prison, which is a nice 3,000 attack and defense addition that we got from Burst of Destiny. It protects your back row, and if you have any set back row... Um, oh, and then it can set any back row from the deck, which in a way counts as like another playset of the main deck monster that sets Dinomorphia back row. Now, I am by no ways an expert on the archetype, however, I played it very steadily for a period of time and played several variants. Dinomorphia is surprisingly flexible, and if nothing else, it can be a nifty engine to ultimately get extra bodies on board. However, that's not why we play Dinomorphia. This deck is a trap-based mid-range deck, which sounds weird, but is surprisingly effective. I'm going to talk about a couple variants I played and then you can kind of judge for yourself how you feel about it. I'm just going to kind of do like a quick pros and cons of like the builds that I tried out. So first off, uh, since this is a trap deck that profits off low life points, I did lean really heavy into the solemn variants. The thing about the Dinomorphia engine is that it's kind of large, so like roughly 12 to 15 cards. Um, if you want to see everything consistently. The Solemn variant played extra copies of the Solemn Judgment and Strike to effectively make the opponent go negative on like using big deck, like big extra deck summons, like, you know, things that took like several materials, things like that. 
In addition, this variant also did run Lord of Heavenly Prison to snag additional negates for following turn to ensure that your OTKs or like big damage swings turn like that turn went uninterrupted. One thing I particularly liked about this deck is that it got to make use of a trap card called Ferret Flames. And if you're unfamiliar with this card, Ferret Flames is a normal trap card that if your opponent's monster's total attack is higher than your life points, uh, they have to shuffle monsters back into the deck until their attack is less than or equal to your life points. Now, you'd be amazed just how quickly your life points drop to like less than 500. So in a way, Ferret Flames kind of acts like an evenly matched in the deck um, because it doesn't even affect the cards, it affects the player. So it can handle some pretty tricky boards if it's played right. Also, Ferret Flames isn't once per turn and it doesn't take like a specific trigger like Torrential Tribute. I found this variant of the deck to be very good in matchups where the opponent invests a lot of monsters into extra deck summons. Think like combo decks that try to lean in heavy into like Opelousa or Axis Code Talker plays. With a single Psalm Strike, the opponent just threw four materials at you for nothing. It was also good as general disruption between like sing between the single removal of like the Dinomorphia as well as the OTK potential. You really only needed one good turn of shutting down the opponent to secure game, which was pretty easy. Now, my biggest gripe I have with this version of a deck was that your trap lineup is like huge. Like, <laughs> like 25 trap cards kind of huge. Now, that sounds really, really good if you're going first. Going second is a very different story. If your opponent made an established board on turn one, you had no way to really contest that board, and you usually just kind of set five cards and pass. Not to mention the possibility of one of those traps being sniped by a DPE during the end phase. (sighs) Unless they pushed more on the following turn, allowing you the opportunity to use like a Torrential Tribute or some of the Solemn cards, they really could just go into battle phase and call it a day. Yes, you may get to block with like the Heavenly Prisons as well, as well as snagging like an additional trap card, but that's under the assumption that Heavenly Prison doesn't get negated. Keep in mind, you must activate something first to trigger heavenly prison and almost all of your trap cards cost half your life points so halving your life points just to get lord to get negated means that you're just that much easier to kill now the remedy of the going second problem is what it it was my second version of the deck i did what dinosaurs do best i played ultimate conductor tyranno this, <laughs> this variant cut back on some of the trap cards, and I replaced them with a handful of like basic hand traps, UTC, and the dinosaur that searches your evolution pills. This way, if your plan A of the trap route did not really work, you had UTC to, la- to lean on that kind of helped you break some of those um, more established boards. This version seemed to work very well. I was able to make room for the Lord of Heavenly Prisons, so you had the capabilities to do some ranked 10 plays using the UTC, which I found to be kind of appealing. 
It meant that you had access to trains, which is another going second OTK engine. So looking back from a distance, you either had a going first play where you got your normal summon done and you set a couple traps to disrupt. Then on the following turn, you pushed for a lot of damage really fast. Or you went second and you broke the board with the dinosaur engine and in main phase two, you set up uh, your place to secure you a turn to push for game on turn four. Uh, what appealed me here was that this deck had a little bit more like oomph to its plays. You didn't just do like one normal summon and set a bunch of trap cards and passed. Instead, you had a couple of interruption, in interactions which could bait out negates as well as break boards if you needed to. Now, the downside was it was kind of tricky here and there was some pretty breaky hands. You didn't really want to see UTC in your starting hand if you could not summon him. You needed as much interruption and negation as possible to secure you another turn to push for game. Also, summoning UTC meant banishing monsters from your graveyard, which this deck doesn't really have a whole lot of. So sometimes it kind of felt like you had to make a choice. Do I summon UTC to break the board and probably not hit for lethal? Or do I continue my Dynamorphia loop and hope that the opponent does not out-resource me? Both of them were not ideal in a deck that needed to like end games kind of quickly. Like, Ideally, you want UTC to secure you the win that turn, or you want to be safe knowing that if you keep the Dynamorphia loop, you're going to win. Like Playing that 50-50 just didn't feel right with me sometimes. So, to remedy the going first problem and the brick problem, I made a third variant of the deck, which felt like a nightmare meshed together. However, this build had some variants. Now, I just... <laughs> I'm just going to go like completely like off real quick. You know when you are working on a deck and you identify some of the flaws and you're like, I'm going to fix this flaw. And then in that process, you make new flaws. So you're like, I'm going to fix that flaw too and fix that flaw too. And then you end up like overtuning a deck to the point that it is like a 40 card pile where there's like no synergies. There's just a bunch of loose synergies and you kind of make stuff work. Well, anyways, so that's what I ended up doing with Dinomorphia, which I think is like as awful as it sounds. It's a great way to learn a lot of different techniques in deck building because you get to identify other potential strategies that a deck could lean into that the deck may end up leaning to in the future. So this was the thing that happened with me. This third build, this third variant of the deck I built was very much that. <laughs> so when I when I start talking about it, you're gonna be like, what the hell, why, why did he build this? I overtuned the deck, that's why I built this. So, the third variant of the deck was a DPE Punk Dinomorphia build. I'm going to let you sit on that one for a moment. So, let me explain my breakdowns. The DP engine was in here because 1. DP is a good card. And 2. DPE's destruction synergizes with all the Dinomorphia monsters to trigger their graveyard effects. And 3. The Celestial Draw 2 was really handy in a deck that didn't really have that much draw and usually just set all of their cards every turn. Now, 
The punk engine was in here for a couple of reasons. One, with two level threes, you can make Gossip Shadow, which was here to kind of eat hand traps and to ensure that your Fusion Destiny or your um, the Dino Warfare trap card resolved. Two, it could make Anaconda to make DPE. And three, it could produce Hulk, which led to like a Selene and Access code line. So the Punk Engine had a defensive play, a consistency play, and an offensive play, making the engine like very versatile depending on what I needed it for. Now, I did not run UTC or the Heavenly Prison in this build because of those like previous bricky issues I mentioned. I kept it simple. Like, Dinomorphia was my normal summon. I E-Telly into punk stuff. And then DP at the end for removal. Altogether, it produced a like very obnoxious board. Now, like I said, there were some merits to this build. <laughs> Most hands got you at least somewhere. Even if you bricked, you at least got one of the three engines going, which solved the issue with the second build, which was like the bricky problem. The deck had plays for going first and going second, which seemed to resolve some of the issues presented in the first build, but along came with like some new problems. Each engine had very little oomph. By slapping these other two engines into the deck, we traded like consistency and versatility of the deck's ability to mid-range, or well, for the deck's ability to mid-range. Um, I found myself really struggling to close out games quick enough and running out of steam also pretty quick. There were games where I would open too much of one engine and none of the others, which just resulted in very weak fields that could be easily played through. But when it worked, it worked. <laughs> Alas, you could say that for like a lot of decks, but this is why we theorycraft. So... Now that I've gone through all that, what are some conclusions for this deck? I think that this deck has a lot of potential. Outside of the initial interactions that the deck can do, it has access to a lot of like burst, like burst potential uh, without the play lines being ridiculously long, which I think is nice. It keeps it simple. However, this is also a downfall. Shorter play lines means that the hand traps are more effective against this deck and the hand traps that hurt this deck are like quite a lot like uh valor ash bell ghost ogre lancia dd crow all of them really hurt this deck in various ways overall the deck is a good concept but just needs like a little bit more disruption as it stands the only really counters that this deck has is like a single pop from one of the trap cards and the counter trap for the spells and traps. So there's no monster negation. Granted, this deck can fully utilize other trap strategies such as like Torrential Tribute, Ferret Flames, and like the Solemn Package. As it stands right now, with the exception of like one fusion monster's attack stat, there's really no reward for dropping your life points so low so quickly. And I think that's one of the biggest issues with the deck as it debuted. Now, this deck does get some new support in Dimension Force. That actually makes the deck a little bit more of a force to be reckoned with. 
They get a new fusion boss monster, which is like a skill drain for anything with attack higher than your life points. So here's a reward for dropping your life points down to 500 life points in one turn. With monsters effects being nulled, it does control the pace of the duel a little bit and allows the deck to actually be able to push for game when it wants to and not when it's pretty much forced to. In addition, they get another normal trap card which allows them to send materials from the extra deck to help make this new boss monster, uh, which both will be a great addition to the deck. It seems like we've covered just about all that we could with this deck, at least for now. I'll probably close out this episode here. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. Like always, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Set5Podcast. I always like to interact with others, especially when it's about Yu-Gi-Oh! Once again, this is your host, JD Shock, aka Julian, and you're listening to Set5Pass. Till next time.